Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, I saw a, a posting on Craigslist this week. It was in the, in the household section. It read, for sale, six large stone jars, 20 to 30 gallon capacity, suitable for purification rites, general storage, dry or liquid, heavy, will not deliver. <laughs> Call or text located Cana of Galilee. Well, obviously, I'm pulling your leg. But the six stone jars in our text are an excellent way to enter into our text. John says that they were for the purification rites of the Jews, which reminds me of Mark's editorial comment in his chapter 7 of his gospel when he writes, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of pots and cups and copper vessels and dining couches. Hence the need for these jars to baptize, to dip, to splash, to sprinkle people and utensils. And stone had an added advantage, an added benefit, that it did not become polluted when it came in contact with something that was unclean, as opposed to copper or clay vessels, excuse me, clay or pottery vessels. Leviticus chapter 11. And if any of them, that is dead creatures, he's specifically talking about bugs, falls into an earthenware vessel, i.e. into your bin of wheat, all that is in it became unclean, and you must break the vessel. Well, the six stone jars on Craigslist are there because their work, their usefulness is ended. They were, however, once at the center, the epicenter of a most profound event, the manifestation of the glory of Jesus, as John writes. But that's to get ahead of our story a little bit. Literally, their work was done when we meet them in the text, unless, of course, there were some late arrivals to the wedding. And then a certain guest, a woman, approaches the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And then another guest Apparently, the he that she was referring to comes up and says, fill the jars with water. Now, put yourself in the sandals of these servants for a moment. It didn't help that there was a stir among the waitstaff. I mean, the wine was running short. There were no reserves. The head steward is getting anxious, but the wedding party hasn't been told yet. The whole, this whole event can go sour really quickly. And who was this guest anyway? This Jesus from a town six or so miles up the road. He was just a guest. He was not in charge of anything. Just a guest. Sometimes I'm afraid that's how we treat Jesus. There are certain times and places when we're more than happy to extend the invitation. Sunday mornings, absolutely. We expect him to show up, to bless us with forgiveness, with his body and blood and the Holy Communion, and to hear and to enjoy the prayers and praise that we bring to him every night around the dinner table. How many of you intone the common table prayer? Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. That pious, gentle invitation, though, can, can quickly morph into what amounts to a subpoena when times get tough and the way gets dark sitting in the waiting room, waiting for the surgeon, Lord, let them get all the cancer. Or 
the phone call that comes at 2 a.m. Jesus, be with my baby. Let him be all right. We can pray with an intensity and an intimacy that pushes that guest label to new heights. But Jesus can also be an unwelcome guest when we're doing our own thing, right? Chasing after the temptations of this world, position and power and prestige. Don't watch. Do you mind? I'm taking care of my stuff over here. Or those internal, those terrible internal sins of the Sermon on the Mount. When I'm angry with my spouse, my child, my neighbor. Can, can you really see that, Lord? Or the wandering eye of physical attraction. Is your eye really looking into my heart? Jesus is a guest that really should just mind his own business when we're giving someone else a piece of our mind that they very well deserve. Jesus is a guest who's not welcome, is not going to be talked about when we're in the context or companions that dictate otherwise. Trying to curry favor with a supervisor at work who is outspokenly a-religious. When we find ourselves among those who espouse positions and ideals we know to be sin, abortion, gay rights, euthanasia. Guest can be a very tenuous status. But thankfully, the servants at Cana listened to this guest, and they filled the six stone jars to the very top with water. At our midweek lectionary discussion, where there was some squeamishness at this point, um, they used for purification. Did people actually stick their feet in them? And what was in them anyway before they filled them up? Did they rinse this out? Hey, people are going to drink this stuff. Our text says only that they filled them up to the brim. And then this guest tells them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. There are any number of places in the biblical narrative when I'd love to ask the characters, a penny for your thoughts? This would be one of them. I've got this jar of water, or this cup of water, and I'm taking it to the chief of the feast. Am I going to look like an idiot? Hey, chief! Try this water drawn out of the cleaning jars. Or do they already know? And if they do, why is there no reaction? John only records that the water became wine and now was, perfect tense, the good wine, to quote the master of the feast. A superabundance of good wine, six stone jars worth. Our ESV translates it into gallons. Yeah, but this isn't Carlo Rossi. This isn't jug wine or box wine. It's really good wine. In terms of bottles at a nice bottle wine shop, we're talking 600 to 900 bottles of wine, 50 to 75 cases worth of really, really good wine. This guest has become the master of the feast, a great and generous and glorious master. As John declares, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That was then, and now the six stone jars are on Craigslist. Their work is done, and job's over. But what do I mean? Well, I need to put the story into the context of John's gospel. The water they once held was for purification, we're told, which takes us back to John the Baptist in the Jordan in chapter 1, when men of the Pharisees wanted to know, hey, what are you doing? 
Why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John says. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. Water was not a symbol. Water was connected to an action. He baptized with water. Hence the jars. The next day, verse 29, he, that's John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the same and yet a different purification. This one is final and complete. And again, it's not a symbol, but it is an action. But this time it is not repeated. It is once and for all time. And now in our text, we see the transition, the transformation of the means, the instrument of purification changes. Water becomes wine. It's still the means of purification, but it is now the blood of the lamb. And here at Cana, it is a symbol or a sign to use John's language, and it points beyond itself to something else or to someone else. It points to Jesus' glorification on the cross. Weinrich summarizes, the wine of Cana is a symbol of Christian baptism, which is a baptism in which water, made effective through the death, the blood of Christ, cleanses from sin and bestows eternal life through the gift of the Holy Spirit. You are clean, purified, made pure by his blood. We simply must read this text sacramentally. That is a physical element, the water, now wine, connected to the word of God, the word incarnate, that delivers the forgiveness of sins. Otherwise, there's no thing to which the narrative refers so that we can see it and in seeing believe that we may hear and in hearing receive eternal life. That's the sole purpose of John's gospel, he tells us in chapter 20. And hence the purpose of this little story. But there's more. Skip ahead to John chapter 3 and the end of the Baptist witness. Jesus and John, we learn, are working in the same area, Anon, near Salim. And a discussion arises between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. The central question of the day. The jars and Jesus, water and wine. And John responds, You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Notice that the central question of purification is answered with an allusion to marriage. Not the marriage feast of Cana, another marriage, one that is all over the Old Testament and the New. We jump to St. Paul in his letter to the church at Ephesus, chapter 5, and notice the similarity in Paul's language and the language of Cana. Paul writes, Christ loved the church and gave himself to her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, purified her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself glorious, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus' death 
is the sanctifying purification through the washing of Christian baptism. It's depicted as a wedding, a wedding that's foreshadowed in our Old Testament reading. Did you hear that from Isaiah? Isaiah wrote, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. As I said, this marriage is all over the Old Testament. Listen to Hosea chapter 2. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And the wedding feast? Well, in the Old Testament, it's characterized by what? An abundance, a superabundance of wine. Amos 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed, and mountains will drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. You know, we put those two together, and we're tempted to run ahead, right? To get to the feast right away? Let's go. But there's two last details we should attend to. The first is the exchange between the mother of Jesus and her son. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Well, before we wash his mouth out with soap, consider the way John portrays Mary. He never mentions her by name. She only appears twice in his entire gospel, twice. Here at Cana and at the foot of the cross where again, Jesus addresses her as woman. But there, that word is filled with just an incredible amount of compassion and love. The real import of that exchange back at Cana is not woman, it's my hour. It's a thread that runs throughout the fourth gospel. Chapter 7, verse 30. Chapter 8, verse 20. His hour is still not yet. And then finally, in 1223, Jesus declares, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He says it in the upper room, right as his passion begins. And the second detail we need to notice is the very opening of our text. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana. Recall earlier... When we read the next day, John says, Behold the Lamb of God. Well, there's a whole string of those next days in chapter 1. In fact, there's four days in chapter 1. So counting inclusively, the wedding occurs on the sixth day. The creation. God created the world in six days. But reading forward into the story, in John's story, on the third day, he rose from the dead the first day of a new creation. The sign, as John says, revealed Jesus' glory. On the third day, we truly beheld his glory. Glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is not the guest of Cana. He's the groom. And we are the bride, the church, purified in the font and expected at the feast. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.